Welcome to the Light Reading Podcast. This is Phil Harvey. I'm an editor here at Light Reading, and I'm joined on the podcast today by Kelsey Zeiser, my Light Reading colleague and fellow editor. Our guest today is a frequent uh, Light Reading guest, uh, Nick Feimster. He's a Neubauer professor at the Department of Computer Science at the University of Chicago. He's also the director of the Center for Data and Computing at the University of Chicago. And on this show, we'll talk about how online learning is different for instructors and students, but certainly not an insurmountable task. Um, Nick will also give us some updates on two academic research areas that he's involved in. First, we talk about the pandemic's effect on service provider networks um, from a technical point of view. Uh, Second, we talk about the challenges of getting broadband access to underserved communities. In a previous podcast, we talked about rural America and rural communities. In this one, we're going to talk more about underserved, so urban areas that maybe just don't have great infrastructure or for whatever reason, there's a a, a wide group of people that haven't um, uh, signed up for broadband access and don't have adequate broadband access to do the things that we need to do, especially during the pandemic, like go to school and look for work and fill out government paperwork, uh, register to vote, things like that. Um, So we'll talk about all of those things. We'll wrap up by having Nick give some advice to anyone that's holding an online meeting, an online class, or a virtual event. He's been doing this a while, so you will want to take note of the tips he's going to be putting out there. Special thanks to Avast for sponsoring today's podcast, and we will get to the great Nick Feimster right after this break. This episode is brought to you by Avast, global leaders in digital security for network operators. They can build a safer digital world for your customers and their families. Discover more at avast.com slash partners. That's A-V-A-S-T dot com slash partners. Welcome to the Light Reading Podcast. I'm Phil Harvey. I'm an editor here at Light Reading. Joined as ever by uh, Kelsey Zeiser, our uh, uh, the the Light Reading Podcast uh, uh, co-host and Keeper of the schedule, um, <laughs> something that has become increasingly uh, uh, challenging in these uh, pandemic times. But uh, how are you doing, Kelsey? Good. Got all these, um, you know, papers and files for our schedule. <laughs> <laughs> I see the the, the ongoing uh, invites that like will appear and then reappear and then disappear again. <laughs> you know, in different uh, different calendars. So like I know I know somewhere she's hard at work. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, let's see. So joining us today uh, from University of Chicago, uh, a frequent, uh, I say frequent, fr- frequent for us, a frequent podcast guest, uh, 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 Professor Nick uh, Feimster from the University of Chicago. Hi, Nick. How are you? Hi, Phil. It's great to be back with, with you and Kelsey. Good to have you back. Thanks for being on. Yeah. I guess the first question is, uh, since we last talked, we, t- we, we spoke in May um, and now uh Classes uh, are just starting up in most in, in most of the country for back to school, but I think you've already been doing some teaching. So, are you teaching uh, online, or are you teaching in person, or a little bit of both, uh, or do you write people really long letters? How, how, how have uh, how have you been doing things? 
all of the above, I guess you could say. I, I think there hasn't been a lot of on-campus teaching, uh, and I think that's mm-hmm. um, as it as a as a general matter. I think that that's likely to continue th- through fall quarter. I think um, officially, U Chicago is is doing a, you know the so-called hybrid mode, where students are coming back to campus in, in some form. But but that's a rapidly evolving situation, and you know, speaking for me personally, uh, the, the vast majority of my instruction and interaction with students is has been and will continue to be online. In fact, U Chicago is it has an interesting academic schedule. It's on quarters as opposed to you know maybe a more conventional semester system. Mm-hmm. And so our mm-hmm. spring quarter started, oh, and it starts late. So our spring quarter actually started, uh, it was supposed to start the last week of March and it ended up starting the first week of April to give people more time to move their courses online. Mm-hmm. So actually, uh, as a faculty member at the University of Chicago, I've actually already had a full quarter of online teaching and so have a fair bit of experience doing that um, now in a classroom setting. I've done it quite a bit in the context of massive open online courses and online degree programs and professional ed before, but this was the first time doing it and, you know, taking a traditional classroom setting and moving it online. So that was a new experience for me. Yeah. In your, um, uh, in a post you were, uh, you put on medium a while back, uh, you were talking about the difference and sort of the similarities between different types of online learning environments um, so I like, what was the, the phrase you use massive open online course? What's, what's sort of, uh, help us understand, like, what's the difference between that and like a, you know, a traditional, what, like what my son is going through a traditional zoom classroom call. Right. So we use this massive open online course moniker. Many people may know of those as MOOCs, but by and large, they're not degree granting institutions like a university or a college, um, you might get a certification of some kind, uh, or you might just get a certificate for having completed a course, or, or you might just get a pat on the back and some, some additional knowledge. Um, and so the experience obviously is, is um, and the expectation for a product uh, is, is actually a little bit different than, say, uh, what your, your son might be going through, where you know, you might be paying a full freight university tuition. And even if, even if for those folks who aren't, like if they're getting a reduced tuition, if they're doing an online master's degree, which, you know, aren't new, mm-hmm. you're, still paying, you're still paying tuition. They expect uh, some kind of experience that is, I'll say, at least as good as, if, if not better. I can say that it's different, but the goal is to make it at, at least as good. And, and mm-hmm. I do think that that's possible, but you, you know, it certainly requires, uh, you know, thinking about your instruction in a very different way because it's not the same as you can't just take a classroom and move it online and expect the same thing. A, a lot of modes mm-hmm. uh, of instruction and a lot of modes of interaction really need to, to adapt to, to a very different setting. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So looking back at your study results that we spoke about in May, uh, what are some changes there in terms of the impact that the pandemic 
has made both on internet traffic volume as well as network performance. Um, have you seen any new surprising data there? Perhaps the most surprising result or observation in, in all of this as far as internet performance is concerned is that there were no surprises. <laughs> um, in other words, <laughs> that's funny. You know, by and large, things were fine. Um, and to the you know to the extent that there's anything anomalous or interesting going on, they are true anomalies. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that's that's testament to a couple of things. One is the design of the internet as a packet switch network that you know as opposed to sort of having fixed resource allocations for each one of us or each device and, you know, setup of circuit, um, circuit-based communication like used to exist when we picked up an old school phone. Yeah. Uh, the internet's basically core design is, is to adapt to uh, fluctuations in load, to, to failures of individual components uh, and so forth. And so, Part of the resilience is really a testament to the original design. Uh, the other, I think, aspect of uh, you know resilience uh, is a testament to the the internet service providers uh, and the content providers who have provisioned the infrastructure in such a way that it can absorb uh, essentially pretty substantial shocks to to traffic demand. Yeah, it's interesting because the um, the tendency for a lot of, uh, especially telco networks, you know, who are also internet service providers, was to build things with the kind of worst case scenario in mind. So they were always building for that peak load traffic, um, you know, Netflix on a Friday night type of right. uh, thing. And interestingly, because they were building for that and it wasn't all completely spun up on demand, um, when the traffic load that hit the Netflix at Friday night became also Netflix on Monday morning and, t- and Tuesday afternoon and so on and so <laughs> forth, they actually seemed to weather the storm quite well. And now, now I think they're just, they're looking at ways to maybe adjust, uh, capacity, you know, to, to be, to, to have their networks be even more flexible, um, uh, like all year, you know, all year long, as opposed to having to that's right. uh, build in, I guess, extra capacity. That, that's that's right. I, th- I think, um, and, and I, I can mention a few specifics there too. But I, I think, sure, uh, you know, in a, in a general sense, um, we have the, you know, the, the congestion days of of twenty fourteen uh, to 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 thank for the preparedness of the internet infrastructure for these kinds of uh, systemic shocks. Because, you know, if you recall, that was when um, Netflix traffic and other, other video traffic saw a huge spike in demand and, and that, that created the types of surges that you, that you were talking about. And of course um, uh, there needed to be some reaction to that in terms of adding capacity to the network, not only adding it, but, you know, continually adding it, Right to keep pace with the growth because the, you know the internet, mm-hmm. uh, sorry, demand for video streaming has has continued to grow. So it, it sounds like in some ways we can thank Netflix for preparing us for the pandemic. In a way, <laughs> the, the meltdown that they that they were uh, largely responsible for, you know, six or seven years ago has has yeah. caused 
you know, has, has caused the need to stay ahead of those kinds of demands. Um, and I think the other thing that I think, Phil, you had mentioned was that um, mm-hmm. uh, some of it, it, it was sort of an increase in demand. But the other thing was basically just that peak uh, has become all day long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. And so... Um, in some sense, plateau now, I guess. right. In some sense, that's um, you know, it, uh, it's an interesting shift, but it, it doesn't like fundamentally change. Um, it doesn't fundamentally change capacity planning, um, mm-hmm. right? Um, I mean, it, it it changes traffic engineering and and traffic management practices potentially, but in terms of like how much capacity you need to allocate on an interconnect, mm-hmm. you're going to be allocating for peak anyway, <laughs> and mm-hmm. so. If peak is, you know, seven to ten p.m. Uh, on a Friday night, or if peak is nine a.m. to nine p.m. all week long, you know, in some sense, that's more of a minor adjustment um, than than a, a, a wholesale rearchitecting of the network. Right. Um, of course, I'm of course I'm simplifying a little bit because I'm sure mm-hmm. any network operator listening to this is like, yeah, come on, I lost, I wasn't sleeping for <laughs> <laughs> for months, but. Um, you know, we had to think about how to how to handle that load, but but it was not let's burn it all down and and, and rebuild. This is not working, right? Well, and and the best possible news was that from the consumer side, it was barely perceptible in most cases. Like if you already had a really robust internet connection and yep. you were already used to, you know, doing conference calls at home or whatever, it you really didn't notice anything except that your monthly traffic usage went way, way, way up. And, right. you know, of course you could talk to your ISP about, uh, whether they were going to, uh, you know, politely ignore that for a couple of months until you sorted it out or whatever. <laughs> I think one of the things that, ha- that we are now studying, um, that, that certainly bears more, more examination is what exactly is going on with upstream traffic out of the mm-hmm. access networks. And um, that is, uh, that's a project that we're just now starting. Um, we have a, a, a little bit of support from Comcast to look at, um, at that specific question, like what's going on with traffic ratios now that people are sitting in, in their homes streaming video out of the home all day? Because that, that is different, right? And um, I think, you know, Empirically and anecdotally speaking, we all seem to be holding up fairly well. That I mean, I should say that the the ISPs seem to be holding up fairly well, but that's that's a fund, fairly fundamental shift um, in terms of traffic symmetry, and um, it is probably something that I imagine that the uh, especially cable ISPs are, are thinking about because historically, um, you know, cable access and DOCSIS has allocated bandwidth in an asymmetric fashion under the assumption that we're at home primarily consumers of content. And so, um, so there may be some interesting things to, to follow up on there. I suspect, as, as has been the case with everything else, that um, you know, there are no catastrophes because we're not, we're not observing them. But there mm-hmm. may be interesting questions related to provisioning, right? Mm-hmm. How, how, what does this mean going forward for provisioning a DOCSIS access network if we can no longer assume a certain traffic ratio um, you know, based on, you know, Netflix and YouTube consumption and now application traffic mixes have shifted to Zoom and Teams and Meet. Yeah. Well, it'd be interesting to follow up with you on that later um, once you have more data. 
also wanted to ask you about um, how internet traffic is potentially changing in rural or historically underserved areas. I imagine that, um, you know, schools have had to be kind of creative and um, providing Wi-Fi or hotspots for students in remote areas. Are you looking into that at all? Kelsey, that's a, a really timely and, and apt question and, and, a, and an extremely complicated one um, mm -hmm. that I think some of it um, goes outside of um, my historical expertise. Some of it might even go out beyond the scope of the light reading podcast, uh, but um, that's exactly why I'm so excited to, to work on it, is <laughs> <laughs> to actually learn a little bit more about that. So, yeah. um, so uh, let me sort of talk about that a little bit. Um, historically, we've been really concerned with things like uh, speed testing, right? To, to put it in, in sort of a, a crude form, am I getting what I'm paying for from my ISP, right? And we run mm -hmm. speed tests and so on and so forth to figure that out. Okay. Well, that's, that's, that's one question, but that's a, a pretty narrow uh, part of, of the bigger picture. Um, moving up from that, you know, we have questions of application performance. Is, is, the, is, the, is the product, if I may, right, is, is, is what my ISP providing me, is that good enough to do the things that I need to do? Now, the question that you posed about access uh, is, is multifaceted, right? Because uh, there is a, there's a sort of surface level version of that question, which is, you know, who has internet access in different regions um, and who doesn't have access? But then there's a really sort of very complicated multifaceted aspect to that, to that question, which is for those people who don't have access, uh, why? And it's not always the case that someone doesn't have access because the ISP isn't providing it to that block, right? Or to their house. Maybe it's a question of affordability. Maybe it's a question of a perceived need. You know, maybe it's a question of, um, uh, sometimes there are, are, are other social questions, you know, just um, past unpaid bills, so on and so forth. You start off with, are you looking into these these kinds of questions? And, and uh, yes, we are. So um, I am working with um, some collaborators in uh, other departments at University of Chicago, in particular, uh, Professor Nicole Marwell, who works in the Social Service Administration uh, School at University of Chicago. She works on uh, things that relate to community resilience and engagement. And also I'm working with uh, another researcher, Elaine Allensworth, who is the director of the consortium on Chicago schools. Uh, and she looks at education and, and sort of what, uh, you know, how, to, how can we sort of track and understand student engagement and outcomes among other things? Because on the, on the very, very far end, on the things that I've spent, you know, 10 years of my career looking at, we have how fast can you push bits across the access link. And on the way other far end, we have our students who are Zooming from home, uh, learning what they need to learn this, <laughs> this school year. And um, yeah, yeah. it's going to be an interesting process. Uh, but we are working with 
uh, partners in the city of Chicago and the Chicago Connected Initiative um, is part of the city um, city initiative to connect 60,000 uh, CPS households across the city to, to better understand some of these questions. Oh, that is interesting. So, um, uh, no, it's, a, it, it's also interesting to kind of draw, draw a bit of an underline between, uh, you know, rural and underserved, because like you were alluding to earlier, there's definitely, um, there's definitely those situations where people just live you know, in locations that are hard to reach. And of course Mm -hmm. the ISP can't get all the way out there. And, and on light reading, we're covering things like low earth orbit satellites and other uh, novel ways of reaching uh, different uh, populations, but underserved is definitely um, suffers the same, uh, you know, uh, after effects of, you know, not being able to get on, uh, get to online school and uh, things like that. But, you know, but, but the causes are so much different and the, and the, um, and I, I assume that some of the solutions are a little bit different too, in terms of how, uh, cities and municipalities can maybe, uh, uh, like you said, ask the right questions and maybe figure out how to better serve those, uh, those populations. That's right. And, and, and that's an area where I'm not an expert, but my, my collaborator, Nicole Marwell, uh, she studies exactly those kinds of questions. And, because you can, you can make an investment in a community potentially, right? Like let's let's build out internet access to that community, or let's mm-hmm. let's subsidize subscriptions to 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 um, you know to to ISP. Yeah, I wish I was more of a uh, I, like you said. This definitely is out. out we're, we're definitely out of our comfort zone here. But I I I yeah. I'm fascinated with this idea of using um, using some of the both city and teleco and and sort yeah. of hard infrastructure that we already have like libraries to yeah. better serve these areas because it is interesting to me that um you know that that the library system in a lot of uh cities if if you were to like look at it from a top topographical point of view it's it's not a bad way to reach just about everybody with some form of wireless access. You know, if you had if you if you sort of reimagined it as a as a as pieces of a network, it would actually be um, you know so, some some city libraries and city buildings are extremely well placed for that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right, uh, Phil, and and certainly I think a lot of cities are um, thinking hard about how the library infrastructure and also how the public school infrastructure can provide anchors for, for connectivity, but also there are security and privacy uh, and also public safety uh, concerns uh, with using those uh, anchors as, um, as uh, internet access attachment points. Um, To give you a sense of that, um, you know, an open Wi-Fi network, um, let's say at a public school, right? Um, okay, just pointing the antennas, like turning them out, you know, into the open from the building, it, it seems like, well, why not? Like, let's just do that. That makes sense. Um, then, you know, people can, you know, use that resource, right? Um, now, on the other hand, um, what you have created in doing that is a, is a point of congregation. And in, right. yeah. um, in, in some urban settings, doing that creates uh, public safety concerns, potentially. 
Yeah, no, that's a that's a boy, that's an excellent point. And yeah, so before we before we get too far uh, to the to the edges of my my grasp on on things, um, I, I definitely like though. Uh, well, I'll definitely it's definitely something I encourage our audience to look into as well. It's like, what is your community doing? What what is your municipality doing locally to help? Um, because no matter how urban or rural your 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 locale there's definitely people that are underserved and there's definitely mm-hmm. people that need to find internet access in order to participate yeah. in school, to file for unemployment mm-hmm. or benefits yeah. of some sort to get their medications because now most of the medications are being um, done via online pharmacies and online refill systems, especially in a pandemic. You don't want to be queued up in line all day and that sort of thing. So um, I'll, I'll just leave it there with that bit of advice, but uh, yeah. um uh, Nick, before we let you go, um, since you are, uh, if I may, an old hand at this, what advice do you have for, uh, you know, p- perhaps, uh, someone who has to, uh, teach an online class or, um, hold some sort of, you know, whether it's a- academic or not, even if it's in the business world, holding some sort of online, uh, doing some sort of online teaching or, um, addressing an audience, what uh, uh, do you have any advice for people doing that for the first time, or something they should be keeping in mind if they're if they're some somewhat new at this? Absolutely, I, and Phil, I'm glad you mentioned you know the business world or meetings as well as 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 uh, as as, a, as sort of another facet of this. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think the advice that I'll offer applies not only to online teaching but also just to um, uh, the way that we interact with each other in the workplace now. And I think the single biggest thing t- that I would keep in mind is that the modes of engagement that work well in an environment that is primarily face-to-face may not be the right modes of engagement if you just move them online, right? So to give right. two yeah. examples, right? Um in a classroom setting where I see the students face to face, it might make sense for me to stand up in front of the class and lecture to a whiteboard and, you know, I can be, I can read the room, right? I can take questions. I can, you know, it's sort of, it's the equivalent to, you know, Broadway theater or something versus a movie, <laughs> right? Or a TV show or, or a radio show. I just had Do you break into song much during your class? <laughs> and um, Hello, no song and dance in mine, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but um, but you know, there's a there's a tendency, I think, and I've I've observed it with some instructors to basically, I'm just going to take my lecture and and like do it on Zoom, and. Uh, that's not it, guys. That is definitely not it. I mean, who among us enjoys sitting through 80 minutes of Zoom? Uh, not me. Um, no, and, and so um, uh, forget about it. Uh, and, and so that's one, you know, so you can kind of read my Medium post as well. But I completely changed the mode of engagement, right? First of all, I turned a, a, a significant fraction of the course um, into asynchronous engagement. So recorded videos, and by the way, short recorded videos. So I broke up lecture content into short, you know, five to 10 minute segments, where by the way, it's, it's asynchronous. If you want to play it at two X, 
that's fine. I won't be offended. If you, know, if you want to play it at half X, that's if you want to watch it three times. So some students actually like that better. Um, mm-hmm. right? um, and then the, anything that was synchronous, I actually kept pretty short as well. And then I basically did moderated interactive Q&A because, you know, again, it's sitting in front of a zoom screen is just, it's not sustainable. And so what I wanted to do is make the most of the online, you know, uh, synchronous experience by making it as interactive mm-hmm. as possible. And that took some organization. There's a little bit in the, you know, in the medium posts where I describe how I organize that. But the, the high level comment there is that it really requires a complete rethinking of how you're going to basically spend people's time and how you're going to engage. Um, because just you can't just take what worked in the um, in the face to face setting and just like shift it to to shift it to Zoom. That that doesn't work. I'll give you one more example because it's kind of a funny one. You asked about the sure. business world, right? So meetings, right? Um, probably you can relate to this. I think probably maybe most of our listeners can relate. You know, we used to have these things called lunch meetings, right? Where you know we'd, we'd, uh, cater some lunch and we'd all sit around and, you know, have a meeting. We'd have to, maybe there'd be an agenda at some point. We'd, t- <laughs> we'd get something done. Maybe, maybe we wouldn't, but at least we got a free lunch. Sure. And, um, you know, I noticed some of these, these lunch meetings that I used to have shifting to zoom and, uh, well, you know, suddenly I don't want to be, not only do I not want to be eating in front of zoom but also i've got kids at home that need to eat at the same time and so suddenly something that was super duper convenient mm-hmm. in in a, in a business setting right or in a in a, in a real world setting because it's like cool even if the meeting is useless like i got a free lunch <laughs> got these chips yeah yeah the the cake was good right but but um but now the lunch meeting becomes this huge inconvenience right mm-hmm. and, and and so uh, you know, even in my workplace, I've suggested that we move meetings away from lunch uh, to allow for a break from the screen, to allow for us to feed the kids and, you know, so forth. So um, th- I think basically the, coming back to the main point, you asked about advice. Um, you have to rethink everything that worked well in the real world setting because just simply transferring it online is, is you know, in many cases, not likely to be the right answer. Yeah. A, a, a great, great advice. Cause that's, that's what, you know, and I know we're early days into a lot of companies being forced to figure this out with a lot of the things that they do, but that's, uh, uh I'm, I, we, we still see an awful lot of that and it just, it, it just, uh, just makes things a little bit worse <laughs> when they, when they don't really consider what their audiences may be going through or, or having to deal with. I mean, especially if you're trying to help, you know, do your own work and then help your kids on their Zoom calls. And then yeah. on top of that, you have to stay on for lunch like that and make oh, your own cake. Like that's it's a bit much. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, we'll definitely uh, link to your Medium post on online courses uh, uh, in our show notes. And uh, and uh, once again, uh, Nick Feimster, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, we do appreciate it. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Kelsey. And uh, I hope to be back soon talking more about uh, what we've learned and some of these ongoing studies. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, Nick. That is it. That's our show. 
This podcast is produced by the Light Reading Video team, Tian Fu and Pierre Landrio. Thank you, boys, for doing what you do. We do appreciate it. You will find this and all of our other past episodes by visiting www.lightreading.com slash lrpod. That's lightreading.com slash lrpod. Or you can subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcasting app. Uh, Overcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, etc., etc. Thank you very much for listening to the Light Reading Podcast. Thanks to Avast for their sponsorship this week. Avast's award-winning security solutions make it easy for your customers to stay safe online no matter how many devices they use. Learn more at avast.com partners. That's A-V-A-S-T dot partners.